Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. Today's film is an Australian film that came out in August 2016, so very recently. It's Red Billabong. Uh, just a heads up, it might still be in cinemas now, but spoilers from here on out. This film's directed by Luke Sparks, and uh, Lloyd, it's always good to touch base with Australian film and sort of see what we're producing at the moment, isn't it? Yep. Uh, basically following the rules of a horror film, this one has beautiful people in isolation, so... Like, uh, that's a pretty good formula. I mean, it works for Cabin Fever, among other things. So, you know, uh, how did you find the film? Yeah, like, I really like the use of uh, Aboriginal mythology mixed in with this conventional, typical monster horror genre film that we have here. And it's there's, uh, it, the film opens with some really, really awesome drone shots that shows the Australian farm. And I really like those elements uh, of the film. Plus, this, as you said, this cast is a very, very good-looking cast, especially that really pretty girl, uh, Jessica Green, who plays Rebecca. Good grief. <laughs> but I the, thought you might like her, yeah. yeah but the, the, the main two leads, uh, f- uh, I think, are absolutely fantastic. I think they're going to have a, uh, a great career ahead of them. The men or the women? Are we talking about the brothers? I'm talking about the brothers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I- I've seen Dan Ewing, who plays um, one of the guys on Home and Away with a neck grenade neck tattoo. That's all I'm familiar with of his work. And here I found him to be quite wooden, though. Um, And uh, unfortunately, and just sort of felt like he was just staring through other cast members. Yeah, so here mostly I found that the way he was acting in his serious scenes, uh, he played Nick in the film, he'd be staring and just staring right through his co-stars, just piercing them with his look, which is a real brooding way to act, sure. Uh, But then when he was acting opposite the guy playing the Aboriginal, it it was obvious there was a huge difference in their acting for me. Yeah, look, otherwise I thought he was okay. But that moment where he realises the girl he likes is in trouble and he says, fuck, (laughs) made me burst out laughing. Um, I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but... Like, if he just said, oh, shit, or, oh, fuck it, or like, and some, something else, but just the way he turns and almost looks to camera, <laughs> that bit made me laugh out loud, so. The really good thing about this uh, horror movie, which surprisingly a lot of horror movies don't do, is that they allowed heaps of time for us to get to know these characters, which is really rare. Like, it took a long, long time before we actually see the the monster in action like yes it does open up with the with the monster killing someone off screen and, and so forth but we really do get to know the brothers we get to know their farmhouse we get to know the brother is dealing drugs and the the brother the other brother Nick left him at some time and he was left to you know pretty much befriend this guy BJ which acted like an older brother maybe slash father figure and you know that that's all great but where I think the drama falls apart is that they 
bank so much on loyalty and abandoned youth. Like I found the whole, you left us, mate. You're only interested in yourself. I was really your father figure. I was there for you, mate. You know, I found all that to be so weak because it's supposed to, you know, the whole film banks on this whole theme and, you know, it pays off at the end with Nick sacrificing himself and that's supposed to redeem him. But because they pushed that theme so much, it really diluted the dramatic effect and I think it took away from the climactic moment of the film. I mean, we'll talk about the CGI later, but I, I'm, for me the problem was that they were in a cave for the climax of the film, but um, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I thought... You know, if, if I had a nickel for each time I've driven through the outback listening to the song This Is Australia, <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack for me, it was a bit too on the nose. There's the scene where Daryl Braithwaite's song Horses plays over Nick and Anya's chat at the van. It's too iconic a song and it was sort of distracting me from the dialogue. And as well, I, I at can't the remember, end, did that come from the radio or was uh, it? It's supposed to have, yeah. supposed but to, it, sure. Yeah, and the other one was there was playing a song about I don't know how I survived over the end credits. Um, everything was a bit too on the nose. Soundtrack could have been a bit more subtle for me. But I, I um, agree. Yeah. Uh, for me, that first half hour was interesting, but I did kind of want to see the monster. I thought, you know, I'm being shortchanged a little bit. I was waiting for this monster movie to start. Well, the first instance we do see of the monster was when. Rebecca, the girl, the really pretty girl, was walking and we see that shadowy, or almost that, that it, it, the billabong is camouflaged to the tree. Mm-hmm. And we're not sure if that's a spirit or what kind of monster we're dealing with. I actually think the great strength of this movie in the first hour and a half is because is that we don't see the monster and it was handled really well when the military guys initially engaged it. We, we They did really well only showcasing the monster's feet or yeah. when, when they tied it down, we see like almost like a Jurassic Park-esque where, oh, that's an animatronic, which was fantastic. Yeah, well put. Yeah, yeah, really well done. And it just all falls apart in the climax, which again, we'll get to. I found the premise where Dan Ewing's character, Nick, he's, he's gone to see his brother Tristan on his property. He gets that letter and he reads it out loud, you know, just for exposition purposes. Granddad left him a letter and he, he drove hundreds of kilometers, you know, to have a conversation they probably could have had on Skype. I was like, all right. Um, and I thought as well, the way he's introduced, he brings his dog. If he brought a new girlfriend or something, you know, or another person in the car, maybe it was part of a road trip. Maybe there would be another sort of way you could tell this, you know, then he has a new love interest and he's still got this old flame. And that, that could have been a bit of, I suppose, you know, character development there. But instead, we just have this van turn up with BJ and, like, three women who all want to sleep with BJ. <laughs> BJ is, like, the wor- the ugliest character. Not physically, but he's just such an ugly person. Yeah, like, he's the villain. He starts yeah, off as the villain. Yeah, he's just like, I, I found it so hard to believe. Why would such stunning girls want to be around a guy like this? Like, she, like one of the girls even says, oh, can you get new friends? It's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, presumably he has the drugs and therefore has the power. Yeah, sure. Um, but the girls aren't so, like, drug-crazy and dependent that it seems like they have to be there. It's it's odd, especially because as soon as Beck meets Tristan and they sleep together and it's quite amusing... Um, I, thought, she's I like, actually thought she was a prostitute hired for that, like, the, like, and he was, like, a pimp, pimping her out, yeah. I can see how you got there, sure. But, like, then when they're in the water, she says, I like Tristan. 
He's basically a drug dealer with a real potty mouth because, like, as soon as he comes in, he's like, curse word, curse word, curse word. I wish there was more redeeming factors to BJ. Like, I really thought they were going to do something interesting with the character when they engaged the... when the military guys engaged the monster and he's driving the truck. It genuinely seemed like he was trying to go all out to help them, but they, they didn't pursue that at all, and I don't think the film was smart enough... To be, to be consciously aware to do anything with the character BJ. He just was so conventional pretty much from the start. Oh, here's the great social villain. Is he going to die from the monster? Yes, he is. You know, they, they didn't really do anything. Like, it would have been better for him to have died from the monster trying to help the girls, protect the girls. Just Sonic redeeming about him so you can't just put him in this two-dimensional space and go, yeah, there's the villain. I mean, the villain changes throughout the film. It felt overly complicated because... Initially, BJ's the villain, and then the uh, real estate property developer, you know, what's he developing sort of thing, he sort of becomes the villain. Then the stepfather turns up. You were never there for me, Dad. (laughs) Yeah. And then as well, I mean, obviously we've got what turns out to be a bunyip, um, sort of the overarching villain. So it's sort of... There's four tiers of different villain for them to deal with throughout the two hours. They could have pulled it off, but uh, they just just weren't handled well. It was interesting to see the two red eyes in the bush. And I sort of thought that would be interesting. Like, I don't know what we're looking at here. And it was sort of answered with the whole uh, military night vision goggles stuff. But initially, of course, I thought that was part of the monster, that he has these red eyes. You know, the film's called Red Billabong. I sort of was going with that idea. And then later... The eyes do glow red, don't they? Um, and they also glow red on all the girls. What did you think of this, like, possession angle? That, that was, that was, I thought that was actually really interesting and very eerie. Um, it, it, you see a separate family, like, I think they were camping out and a guy's fishing and this really beautiful girl goes, come play with me. I would have liked to have seen a little bit of comedy, comedy there where the guy looks around to see if his son's still watching and he goes, all right. <laughs> you know, and then just disappears. The woman in the tent who was like, he's your uncle now, was not a good actress. And uh, that stood out against others. Yeah, the the two red eyes and the, and then the fact that their eyes go white, you know, uh, like they've lost their soul or their humanity or something. As well, everybody says that, like, they're dead now. But then, interestingly, they're still obviously there at the end of the film. They're able to come back from that kind of weird hypnosis It'd be interesting if, like, uh, they'd had a conversation where Beck or one of them was like, what's been going on? I don't know what's been happening. Like, they'd been in a trance or something. But instead, they, when they snap out of it, they're willing to escape and just go with the flow. At the very start of the film, we see a hooded guy. And obviously, I guess he kills the grandfather who loses the, who throws the map away or, or something like that. Who is the hooded guy? Well, it must be the stepfather. Okay. Because it implies that he killed the grandfather and, like, he was there when he died. And he sort of brags about it to uh, Nick and Tristan at some point in the film. But obviously we don't know who he is at that point because, you know, it's the beginning of the film. It's the opening sequence. And he gets away, obviously. Until he's in the cave, which we'll get to. I found the reading for uh, Nick when he tells, uh, I think it was um, Anya, that my father is a, a mythological 
um, uh, history historian or something. I can't remember the exact word, but a person was a cryptozoologist. <laughs> I, I believe. found the reading of that was just like, yeah, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's in the script. <laughs> <laughs> there was some great economy with the shots. I think the director did really, really well here. That I dare say it's almost John Ford esque, and that's a moment when the military guys reveal themselves, and then you know they're telling them, "Does anyone know how to shoot guns?" And they're like, "Oh no." And then it cuts to a shot where the f- stepfather is talking to Tristan, um, the other brother of Nick, and in, in the background you can see them get up and the military guys showing them how to um, uh, showing them the ways of the gun, like showing them how to hold it and so forth. There's two things going on there. One, the training. Obviously, they're giving the director's giving you that information. Okay, these guys are getting prepared for battle. And then two, the stepfather. We're getting more exposition with the stepfather and Tristan. It's brilliant. I was just like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the use of the military was good, and it did remind me of Jurassic World. I love um, that. I love when you have a smoke monster and military guys, just a bit of muscle. Because quite often, these smoke monster movies, you always have this stunning girl running for her life and the boyfriend trying to save her. And they're very... They don't have any power. There's no muscle for the good guys. And that's why I love, like, Aliens movies like that where you have just a little bit of muscle to to engage the smoke monster. And I think the director did a brilliant job with that scene. It was absolutely terrific with the cars and they're trying to gun it down Then they try to um, hold it down with the net and they're trying to electrocute it. They're trying to tranquilize it. Nothing's getting through its armor. It's really, really great. I think it was one of the best action set pieces I've ever seen coming from an Australian film, excluding, of course, the great Mad Max 1 and 2. For me, the question was whether or not the Bunyip could be killed. Um, They sort of imply that it's immortal and that it's been here forever and that it's just trapped in the billabong, basically. So if it can't be killed, why are they trying to kill it? I mean, if they've been researching it for years and they know all this stuff and the cryptozoologist, whatever... I was confused because I was like, maybe they should just be trying to catch it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It just showcases how arrogant they were thinking that their modern could te- kill it. Yeah, their mm. modern technology could engage it and the Aboriginal community, the little we see of them, simply have a spear and a boomerang, like these old ancient weapons, but you know, the the military guys would just never they were just too arrogant to accept that those weapons were the ones to defeat it, despite all their research and preparation. And don't forget about the didgeridoo. Oh, didgeridoo, of course. Well, he did use that for a bit. It's just like, why don't you just keep using that? Because he, the, the, the bunyip seems to escape for a bit and they can't see it. And then he blows on the didgeridoo and then he sees it fall. Yeah. Yeah, and then that's how they capture it. It's just like, why don't you just keep using the didgeridoo, man? Just keep playing it. <laughs> yeah, because then it'll be lulled into whatever, you know, weakened state. Yeah, just have a loop of it on tape. You know, and then you can put it in that zoo that you want to get heaps of money and <laughs> whatever they, you want. <laughs> they could have used you while they were trying to capture it, man. That's a good idea. <laughs> you know, in most horror films, the people that have sex usually die. Yeah. And so I was sure Beck was going to die when she went for that swim. Um, that all came from John Carpenter's Halloween, a uh, very uh, puritanical film which punishes any teenagers that engage in any sexual activity (laughs) yeah so when um bj gets naked and jumps in after her you know and she says i'm not going to wait around for you to get sick of anya i want to be with tristan and then she's left there for hours i'm like well she's definitely dead they're gonna find her body in a tree or something you know (laughs) when they wander down but uh, amazingly she survives and so does tristan who was also in that sex scene i want to ask a question about the property developer 
I think I've seen him in TV ads and stuff, you know, the actor. Is he American in real life? I don't think he is. I think he's an Aussie doing an American accent, but um, not 100%. I, um, I wanted to ask, let's say theoretically, they signed the papers and the property law clause meant that they got whatever was on the land, you know, so they get the bunyip too, legally. That was the plan, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they've signed all the surrounding areas as well. They're trying to get the land the bunyip is on, the billabong, basically. So say that happens and they get the land, then, I mean, I guess they just kind of set up and catch it like they were going to do anyway. It's sort of really complicated. Well, I guess they don't have any risk of any other people getting injured. Like, I, I do feel like despite how villainous the military seemed, they did try to do this deal without hurting any other civilians. And there was a sense of safety to their plan. But they had to hasten that plan once the billabong, like once they... Um, uh, once the, two girls were taken, I exactly, guess. Exactly. Once the two girls were taken, it's like, all right, we have to go to, you know, code red or whatever a military code is to to engage really rapidly. Yeah. I mean, I found uh, Kate, who was the second girl who was taken, the scene where she's taken where they're like, Kate, swim, Kate, swim, Kate, was awful. <laughs> uh, there's that shot from behind, which is a classic horror film, where you see somebody being attacked from behind. They seem vulnerable. The camera's behind them approaching them it's almost point of view of the monster and um she barely seemed to be moving you know uh when she was swimming back and it wasn't as if she was really on drugs or anything like that it was just incredibly slowly happening and you sort of knew that she was about to be grabbed i thought a weaker part happened when uh the not rebecca sorry yeah rebecca when she comes out and goes join us and then those two guys seem to go into a trance both Tristan and uh, BJ, and just their acting or the direction, they're just like, oh, okay, they're supposed to be hypnotised at the moment. Like, that that was a bit confusing to me. I mean, what was confusing to me was, um, well, the, the stepfather, whose name is Sam. So he's, a, he's basically married the mother to be closer to the grandfather, you know, so that he could be close to the research about the bunyip, which is a really convoluted plan. So, you know, they say to him, what happened to your face? And he says, occupational hazard. So he's physically been scarred, presumably, by the bunyip. They mention that the bunyip killed the grandmother and the grandfather. And they obviously want to lure it out with the other girl. But this is why he, like, abandoned them. He wasn't really into them anyway, because he was just in it for bunyips. How, lo how long would he have been in a relationship with them for? Long enough to marry her. Well, that doesn't happen overnight. Well, I felt like he was there primarily for that dramatic core of the movie, which is about abandoning youth and being there for your family and all the rest of it, which I, I think was actually a weak, uh, dramatic uh, element to the whole story. I think to bank your whole film on that um, uh, theme just seemed so weak. And uh, I think maybe just cut out that whole father subplot, you know, just have the American guy as the villain maybe. I mean, that probably would have worked better. It seems overly complicated for him to have gotten closer to the grandfather yeah, by marrying no, the mother. I, I get what you mean. And, and, and th I, this movie's very long as well. Like, they, yeah. they could have cut out, like, at least 30 minutes. That's how I felt it was 30 minutes way too long. 
And ironically, the first 30 minutes is all that exposition and well, all the characters. I think that was the best part, actually. <laughs> well, maybe you could lose 10 minutes of that yeah. and 20 minutes across the action. Anyway, exactly. But I just think he should have just befriended him. Couldn't he have just been friends with the grandfather to get close to the research? Couldn't he have taken an interest and just been nice to him? I just... Anyway, the fact that he married into the family and, and they got to know him, obviously, well enough to feel abandoned by him you know, says he was around for a while. Um, and I was never really clear on the age difference of Nick and Tristan, because apparently Tristan was too young when all this happened, and Nick was old enough to get a job. So is he 35 and Tristan's 25? 10-year gap? Then maybe it's closer to 20 and 10 when, you know, so then they have the same father, though, but like 10 years apart. I mean, it's... If you're having to ask all these questions of the yeah, plot... exactly. It does make it tricky. What did you think of the Aboriginal leader? We really took some time out to tell the Dreamtime story and explain the origins of the Bunyip. You know, I, the I am all for um, Aboriginal mythology. I think we. I'd love to see more of that mixed in, even if it's a conventional horror film like this. I just like that idea. They're tr just trying to merge the two uh, together. And I, I really like that. But again, with the length, maybe that's one of the scenes I would have cut out uh, just just to give the mystery more um, of the bunyip, maybe. But you do need that lore to make the climax work, I guess, and how that affects him and everything, like how the weapons affect him and everything. Yeah. I mean, he explains how the evil spirit went into the billabongs and it's still out there, and it always will be. And the way he says it always will be says it's immortal. And the fact that it, the bunyip can give the gift of eternal life to three women sort of says to me... That it can't be killed. I love it how the Aboriginals were clothed in these dusters. They weren't wearing your typical, you know, native outfit. Like I was so worried they were gonna uh, the the film was gonna have them just in these native sort of clothes, like pretty much nothing at all. Uh, it was just so cool how they all had dusters and they all had four wheel drives. Just like yeah, that's more practical. If they're rangers on this land, that's what exactly what they'd be wearing. There was something so cool about it. How they're all waiting for him. How he's inside in the van looking at all. Oh, sorry in that um, work uh, makeshift work office and he's looking at all the um, special military weapons and everything and he comes out and all the Aboriginal guys are waiting for him and I was just like, yeah, that, that's cool. That's how they should be dressed, you know. As well, for the climax, there was just the main Aboriginal leader. The rest of them weren't there and they disappeared. Anyway, um, the military seemed like when they came in that they were just being introduced for a slaughter to me. <laughs> you know, so many characters that could be killed off in like not quite the climax of the film. And they really took advantage of that. Now you mentioned, and I completely agree, that the Bunyip is sort of free and attacking everybody and the way they shot it, like showing just the feet and then like the blood splattering at them, it was... It was handled well in that sequence. Yeah, it was fantastic. And when they were getting in the cars trying to drive away and he's trying to pot shot him, oh, that was that was all so cool. Loved it. It had elements of Jurassic Park, had elements of Aliens. You know, I, I think um, Luke Sparks did a wonderful job there. For me, there were two moments in this film where I really questioned what the Bunyip was doing. And one of them was when it rips off the roof of the car and it attacks just one of them. And it's not one of the two leads, it's the military guy driving the car. And the other one is when they're in the caves and BJ is up on the wall next to Tristan. And it moves past Tristan to get to BJ like it moves further for its meal. 
neither seemed like logical choices, like animalistic choices, but you know, you go with it and you've got to, you know, keep those main who, characters. Who was the alive. old guy in the cave, the other one? I don't know. I, I sort of assumed that it was like a cameo from someone on the crew or something, you know? There was that constant tense music during that military scene as well that was like dun 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 forever, like on a loop. Which is probably the only thing I would have changed. It just felt too repetitive to me. The the climax of this movie is where it falls apart completely for me. The cave looked okay. I thought it looked pretty good. But my gosh, once we saw the monster completely, once we saw the bunyip, it looked so bad. Like, I can't understand how anyone can sit in an editing room and go, yep, uh, that that's great. Like, what happened in Jaws, when Spielberg looked at the film in post-production, he saw that the shark looked horrible, looked like a rubber toy, you know? And, a, and working with his editor, the great Werner Fields, uh, he, he, they just both decided to hide the shark as much as possible. It was so delicate in how many frames you should give the audience showing the shark moving. And, you know, Jaws turns out one of the greatest horror films, one of the greatest films ever made. I, and they did that technique, uh, okay for and fine in Red Billabong um, during that military battle sequence. There was also a great moment when they when the two brothers first spend the night uh, at the at the farmhouse and they can hear scratching or, or a howling sound. They get up and you see a shadow move in the yeah. background. That looked fantastic. That was like signs. Yeah, you it was know? a great moment. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was, it was, it was terrific. Um, but once... Once the climax began, it looked so bad. It became so hard to watch. And I know this is a low-budget movie, but, you know, I I reviewed a movie on our YouTube channel where we um, review really obscure movies. One of the one of the most we, there's so many terrible films Dave and I have seen over the course of the years we've been doing those reviews. But one of the films I reviewed on that channel is called Infested, starring Amy Jo Johnson, who played the Pink Power Ranger. That is one of the worst films I have ever seen, hands down. And in particular, the special effects and the monsters were so bad. I put Red Billabong almost on par with Infested. Like, that's how bad the special effects were. Like, I hate to say it, but uh, it, it was so hard for me to watch. And that poor Aboriginal guy fighting that really bad CGI monster, I was like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> the CGI on the Bunyip, I mean, he looks sort of like an ogre from Lord of the Rings, but he, he doesn't seem to move with enough kind of fluid motion. Was there animatronics at some point? Like some of the Maybe. points? Yeah, it looked great, the animatronics. like Yeah, I thought it looked like claymation when you got to the cave. Sure. Um, the arms and legs were far too stiff, and I mean, there was a nice close-up of the eye during the military sequence, and the way they used those shots to hide him was really good. And then they undo, undo all that good work in the cave. Like, you do see too much of it, and... Yeah, for a horror film, you're horrified at the CGI. Um, Yeah, outside of that, he's fighting his stepdad, and that's the big, real, really the big emotional conflict of the film. And um, he sacrifices himself for his um, family and friends, I guess. Like, he keeps him down there. But wouldn't it have mattered if he had escaped? I guess he would have posed a danger to the the family afterwards. Like, he probably could have done something really awful to them. If the stepfather escaped, yeah. I mean, I would have assumed, if you'd asked me who lives in this movie, I would have assumed that Anya, Nick and Tristan and Max the dog would all live. So, I mean, the fact that he sacrifices himself and he doesn't get out of the cave 
is unusual, you know, when your lead actor doesn't live through the film. But you didn't care enough for that to be a, such a huge dramatic moment, you know? Like, I, it would have been better just to have him survive, just to have that, oh, yeah, he survived, you know? <laughs> I mean, it does mean Anya, like, doesn't get to marry him and is alone and she's not with BJ, obviously, anymore and, you know, that she was just in love with Nick again and he was saying, I love you and stuff at the end. Like, that was supposed to be, you know, how it was, but... Anyway, uh, I thought there was probably more chemistry between Tristan and Anya. In the in the shopping, you know, uh, scene where they're walking around together, there seems to be a bit of flirtation. But anyway, for me, the problem with the CGI was the lighting. Now, the, the bunya moves around the cave, but the lighting really stayed the same uh, on, the, on the kind of claymation-looking bunyip. So, like, the lighting on him didn't change as he moved around, and it makes him kind of stand out from the background. Yeah, so that lighting being the same regardless was what really took me out of that sequence. Did you laugh at all, Dave? Besides where he says, fuck, <laughs> uh, I laughed when the Aboriginal guy goes, hey, Bunyip, you remember me? <laughs> and he fights him with two boomerangs and uh, a didgeridoo. And I was like, wow, this is a crazy third act. And, I mean, it's so difficult because it, it wants to be taken seriously as a horror film, but then it does such kind of stereotypical, <laughs> you know standout comedy stuff like that I was just like what am I watching you know um the tone maybe wasn't right for me also in the third act the bunyip has these amazing claws and teeth that you see close up when he's trying to kill Anya or take over her when the rituals begun you know but he never really uses them in that third act the claws or the teeth which I kept waiting for but um never happened for me Lloyd well, those ancient weapons, man, they got a, you know, they got a lot lot going for them. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, claws versus boomerangs. You know, boomerangs going to win. The cave collapses and that kind of water stuff spits all over Tristan. What what happened there? Did the monster get squished? What what was all that goo? I don't know. And he didn't wipe it off his face or anything. Like I would have thought it was kind of a gross goo that kind of splashes all over his face. So, he doesn't seem horrified by it. And it, effectively, Tristan lives and all the ladies survive. Interestingly, that Nick dies, but then they all just kind of leave his property that he doesn't get to sell anymore. Um, so he doesn't make any money out of it. His brother's dead. Uh, I guess he gives the land to the Aboriginals, um, which was his grandfather's wishes. And they say the Bunyip is still out there. Well, it's yeah, it's locked now for, a, well, I guess, a long period of time until somebody breaks him out. Well, he's got people to feed on in the cave, so... You know, he'll survive for a while, presumably. This, you know, kind of seemed a little bit like The Host, uh, that South Korean film where, you know, the monster takes people back and has a food supply. But obviously that was like a really fantastically done film and the, and the, the key was the CGI. You believe that that monster's running around grabbing people where, I mean, this deteriorated as the film went on, uh, unfortunately, and probably part of that is the runtime, like an hour and 52 and the, the standout music as well for me just too much took me out of the movie um, for me to love it. But, I mean, I like to check in and I like to see what these Australian films are doing at the moment, Lloyd. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to see um, a, a, a really, uh, I guess, a passionate attempt at making a, a very a very good genre horror film here. And uh, they, they almost, to me, they almost pulled it off. As you said, the length really hurt it and the climax just destroyed it. Like, <laughs> completely for me. Like, it really butchered it. I don't know if a re-edit could fix it where they, they could try to hide 
the monster. Like, if you have an editor as good as Spielberg's editor to 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 go in there and tr- really try to save it, it maybe it's not too late. It just got an early release, you know, before the international release goes. Maybe you can, you know, try to smother it. But uh, otherwise, as it stands, the the third act really does butcher the film for me. Hmm. I thought Tim Pocock, who plays uh, Tristan, did well. Uh, I thought Jessica Green was a standout in terms of like. She's a model and she gets to, you know, uh, show off her assets quite a bit. Sophie Don, who played Anya, did all right. And um, BJ does come across as a massive jerk. So Ben, ben Chisholm did a good job he with him. He pulled it off, yeah. And um, a credit to the director, um, Luke Sparks. I think he... Sparks, sorry. He, he did some great things here with the action. And obviously his passion for that uh, for this type of uh, genre film really does um, come from the forefront. Um, you know, so I think he's got a lot of promising talent. And, um, yeah, I hope to see more f- uh, more from him. Well, we're going to have more Australian films uh, in the next couple of weeks. And as well, we're going to have an Australian interview uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. So you guys can subscribe to us at podmeifyoucan.com. And uh, Lloyd's already mentioned our YouTube channel. There's a link to it there. It's lots of obscure films with famous stars in them. So uh, tweet us, send us requests on Facebook, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, keep it locked here on Podme if you can for more Australian films in September. Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Podme if you can. Movie reviews. 